0: The Philistines capture the ark. Now the Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel. And as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, why did the Lord bring defeat upon us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Lord's Covenant from Shiloh, so that it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent men to Shiloh, and they brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who was enthroned between the cherubim and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. When the Ark of the Lord's covenant came into the camp, all Israel raised such a great shout that the ground shook. Hearing the uproar, the Philistines asked, What's all this shouting in the Hebrew camp? When they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid. A god has come into the camp, they said. We're in trouble. Nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us. Who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? They are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the desert. Be strong, Philistines. Be men, or you will be subject to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and the Israelites were defeated, and every man fled to his tent. The slaughter was very great. Israel lost 30,000 foot soldiers. The Ark of God was captured, and Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Death of Eli. That same day, a Benjamite ran from the battle line and went to Shiloh, his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he arrived, there was Eli sitting on his chair by the side of the road, watching, because his heart feared for the ark of God. When the man entered the town and told what had happened, the whole town sent up a cry, Eli heard the outcry and asked, What is the meaning of this uproar? The man hurried over to Eli, who was 98 years old and whose eyes were set so that he could not see. He told Eli, I have just come from the battle line. I fled from it this very day. Eli asked, What happened, my son? The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the Ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the Ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken and he died, for he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for forty years. His daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant and near the time of delivery. When she heard the news that the Ark of God had been captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she went into labour and gave birth, but was overcome by her labour pains. As she was dying, the women attending her said, "'Don't despair, you have given birth to a son.' But she did not respond or pay any attention." She named the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the ark of God and the deaths of her father-in-law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, sally And what a sad, devastating Word of the Lord this is that we have today, full of destruction and full of death. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we invite you to come once more by your Holy Spirit. You open our hearts to your word and your word to our hearts. Come and open up this word for us today in 21st century Britain and speak it into our lives, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I know that was a heavy way to start, but actually it's quite a heavy passage, isn't it, really, what we've just had read out to us. And if you've looked in your notice sheet at the back, it does actually say we've got four chapters to get through tonight, don't worry, we're just going to stick with chapter four. But I would encourage you to look at the other chapters as well in the book that has been being waved again by our vicar. I don't know how Richard Godden does it. I seem to have dozens of copies of these at home. I think he comes around at night and puts them through the letterbox. Every room I go in, there's another one. But I would recommend that you read it through. Uh, read it through this week. But let me let me summarize what happens after chapter 4, very quickly, 5, 6, and 7. So we've just heard that the Ark of God uh, has been captured. It's gone into Philistine hands. So what happens next, and it's very interesting, from this point onwards, these chapters, we don't actually have Samuel mentioned for several chapters. It's like a little bracketed bit before Samuel comes back into play again. What happens in in the Philistine area is the, the Ark of God turns up and judgment breaks out amongst them. Plagues, a bubonic plague, it would appear, rats and tumors, and so lots of them die in this particular city. So they then move the ark on somewhere else, and it goes to another city, and of course the plague and the rats follow there. And so they move it to another city. It becomes a little bit, excuse my kind of humor here, but a little bit Python-esque. It's almost like, oh no, not the Ark of God. Not, not the comfy cushions kind of thing. And they do get like that. They kind of say, don't bring it here, don't bring it here. Because every time it goes to anywhere amongst those towns, lots of them die. And so eventually they get to the point where they say, we can't deal with this anymore. We may have captured the Ark of this god. Let's send the Ark back. And so they take two cows and they hitch the, the Ark, which is like, like a box that would be normally carried, carried by priests, Uh, on a cart behind, and they say, right, let's just let the cows go, and if it goes back to the Israelites, we'll know that this has been the hand of God upon us. And if it doesn't, well, you know, it's just been chance, all these things breaking out. Oh, and by the way, we better send a little gift to this God as well. Strange gift, you may think, but they decide that they're going to carve out of gold uh, some of these rats and some of these tumours. Don't know why. Well, we do know why. It represents the number of leaders and and the number of cities. Anyway, so they put those with the ark as well, and off goes the ark, and of course, it just goes straight to Israel. It says it doesn't veer to the right or to the left and goes back to the Israelites. The Israelites see the ark of the covenant of God arriving and they get really excited. Yes! Fantastic! We've got it back again! Brilliant! And they start to celebrate and they start to cheer. They don't really grasp completely what's going on. Some of them peer inside the Ark and it says that a number of them are then slain as well. They still seem to be treating the Ark of the Covenant with contempt. It then gets moved to another place and they they consecrate a particular person to look after the Ark. And then we kind of jump ahead 20 years. And it says after 20 years the people then return to the Lord. And then Samuel turns up again and he said, you really need to repent. We really need to repent of the foreign gods and the idols that we've been following. And it's at that point that blessing then starts to come back to the Israelites. That's my little synopsis. Read about it yourselves this coming week with the aid of Richard Godden's book. But let's go back to chapter 4, where it starts to go wrong. And chapter 4 really is just an outworking of the, prophe- the prophecies that we've already had in chapters 2 and 3. So we shouldn't really be surprised at what happens here. They lose a battle. Why have we lost the battle, they say here, the leaders? Why have we lost this battle? We're the chosen people of God. We don't lose battles. It's the right question to be asking, but as you'll see, they come up with the wrong answer to the question. I know what we'll do, we'll send in the ark. Now, the ark was where the Ten Commandments were kept. It was between the cherubim that the Lord used to meet and speak to Moses. Incredible, holy piece of inverted commas furniture. It meant a lot to them. Previously, in battles, we can see that in Numbers chapter 10 and and, and Joshua 3, the ark had gone ahead and they'd been victorious. Therefore, it's going to work again this time. That's all we need to win a battle. It's just send the ark ahead and everything's going to be fine. But it doesn't work, does it? Why? Well, there's a little clue in verse 4. And Eli, the priest's two sons who were also priests there, Hophni and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. If you were here last week, you would have heard a little bit about Hophni and Phinehas. They were priests, supposedly doing a priestly duty, but we realise when we read that they weren't. In fact, they were treating the sacrifice And God with contempt. You might have heard it last week, but they they should have been, when the food was was offered, they should have been plunging in and taking out wherever the fork went, but they said, no, 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 we want the best of the sacrifice. We want the really kind of meaty, fatty bit that tastes nice. So they were treating the sacrifice with contempt. And secondly, we're told that these guys were also, and we know that one of them is married because we hear about it at the end of this chapter they were sleeping around with the women at the tent of the meeting. As one translation put it, these were real scoundrels. These are the two guys who were taking the ark into battle. Something not right here. The last couple of weeks, we've been thinking about the poor leadership that there is in 1 Samuel. Eli This old man we hear about towards the end of this story. Well, what kind of leader is he? It says at the end of this chapter, he'd led Israel for 40 years. There's some irony there, I suggest. Eli can't even lead his own family, let alone lead the nation of Israel. John Maxwell, the leadership guru who writes a lot of stuff. Some of you may have read some of his works. Christian, he says that leadership is always the problem. And leadership is always the answer. That may sound a little bit trite or a truism, but just think about it. Leadership is always the problem. Leadership is always the answer. If you want to think about the scriptures, if you want to think about the world that we live in and history, where leadership has been a problem, things have gone wrong, haven't they? Where leadership is good, everybody benefits. Think about it in our world today. Think about it internationally and nationally. Think about it locally. But before we start pointing the finger at anyone else, think about it in our own lives as well. The the areas that we might have responsibility of leadership in as well. Leadership is always the problem, but leadership is always the answer. There's a lot of disobedience. There's a lot of sin going on here amongst the leaders. It's easy, though, to blame the leaders. The people don't seem to be brilliant either. Someone else once said that the people get the leaders they deserve. I don't know who that was, but there's something in that as well. And if we read on through these chapters, and I've already mentioned chapter 7, it's 20-odd years later before the people... Repent of worshipping foreign gods and idols in their own lives. It's a complete mess. The leaders and the people are in a mess. Hold on to those thoughts then as we move into the second half of this passage where we look at this character, Eli. The message comes back to him. Eli is a 98-year-old man and he's waiting for the news, trembling, wondering what's happened. We pick it up in verse 16, where it says this. Eli asked what happened, my son, to the messenger. The man who brought the news replied, Israel fled before the Philistines, and the army has suffered heavy losses. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backwards off his chair by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. He died. For he was an old man and heavy. He had led Israel for 40 years. I picked on Eli a little bit earlier. I don't think he was all bad. After all, it was Eli that pointed out to Samuel how to discern God's voice. I don't think he's completely wicked. But even here, he seems to have missed the point. Yes, interestingly, he doesn't seem so upset that his sons have died but that the Ark of the Covenant of God has been lost. But even that is missing the point, I suggest. It's not that the Ark is captured, but why the Ark is captured. Hold that thought. We haven't finished with the death, unfortunately, because there's someone else yet to die. There we have Phinehas' wife, She's had a pretty difficult marriage, we already know, because we've heard something of the character of her husband. She's expecting. She's pregnant near the time of delivery when she hears the news that the ark of God has been captured. Her father-in-law and her husband are dead. She goes into labour and gives birth early. But she's overcome by her labour pains. And as she is dying, the, woman, the women attending her say, don't despair, you've given birth to a son. But she did not respond or pay any attention. She named the boy Ichabod, which means no glory, or where is the glory? Saying, The glory has departed from Israel because of the capture of the Ark of God and the deaths of her father in law and her husband. She said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the Ark of God has been captured. No glory. Where is the glory? There's a clever little play on words here as well because we've already read about um, Eli being weighty. Very similar word in the Hebrew, meaning weighty and glory. I think it's written perhaps with that in mind. She's a little bit closer than Eli. It's not about the ark, but the glory has departed from Israel. But the glory has departed from Israel not because the ark has been captured. The ark has been captured because the glory had already departed. I'll say it again. The glory has departed from Israel not because the ark has been captured. The ark has been captured because the glory has already departed. We're a chosen people. God is with us. He has chosen us out of all nations of the world. We have the ark with us, with the Ten Commandments in it. Everything's going to be fine. It's not fine though, is it? The glory has departed because of the sin in the leadership. And the sin that is at work in the people of Israel. The disobedience. The way that they've turned to other gods and turned away from the true God the glory is departed because those that should be ministering the sacrifice are sleeping around with people at the tent judgment seems to be breaking out in this place they still have the ark before this But the ark is the the sign or the symbol of God's presence. And the people have become more interested in the sign and the symbol than in the presence of his glory. So, that's a few thousand years ago. What does it mean to us today? Come on, Matt, you've come out with some great Tony Blair soundbites this evening, but tell us what it means for us today. Well, that's a political reference for those who are too old to about 10 years ago plus. I'm going to suggest two applications for us today. We don't have an ARC, do we? We don't have an ark that goes ahead of us. You haven't come along this evening and and, and sitting there thinking, right, I'm really looking forward to seeing the ark. We don't know where the ark is. There have been films made about the raiders of the lost ark and all that kind of stuff. We're not really sure. The ark represented God's presence. I love the opening of Hebrews chapter 1 in the New Testament. In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by his son. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The moment Jesus was born, and of course we'll be remembering that again in a few months' time, the manifest presence of God was here upon this earth. No more ark, no more other people having to whisper and pass on the message. The manifest presence of God was here walking upon this earth, talking to people, healing people, teaching people, making friends with people, working in a carpenter's shop or builder's merchants or whatever it was that Jesus was doing there. Jesus wandering around, the presence of God with us, That's quite awesome, don't you think? Allowing people at times to worship him. Fantastic news, the presence of God here upon this earth. Of course, what do we do with that presence? Well, we crucified him. We still rejected him. We put him upon a cross and crucified him. Because we couldn't actually cope with that manifest presence of the Lord being amongst us. Of course, the Lord couldn't cope with being dead, so he rises, has to rise. It's impossible for Jesus to stay dead. We celebrate that, of course, at Easter. The presence of God here again, alive, meeting with people, eating with people, teaching people, being worshipped by people. I know you know all this, but I'm making the link from the ark to Jesus. And then what happens? Jesus ascends into heaven. Before he goes, though, he says, don't worry. I'm going to send you so you won't be like orphans. I'm going to send you my Holy Spirit. And he fulfills what he promises because Jesus always does. The Lord always fulfills his promises. If the Lord has promised anything to you and you're still holding on to it, he always fulfills his promises. People may let you down. The Lord will never break his promises. Amen? Sorry, I got a bit Pentecostal there. <clears throat> Amen, <brother. laughs> Preach it. <clears throat> so the Holy Spirit, we read in Acts, is poured out upon all flesh. The Holy Spirit comes into his church. And of course, personally, what happens at that moment when we are born again Saved, become a Christian, don't care what language you want to use. The Holy Spirit enters us. Now that is even more awesome than an ark, I suggest. If you are a Christian here tonight, you have God's presence by his Holy Spirit in your life. Wherever you go, whether it's here in church or at work or at school, as a Christian... You've got the presence of God at work in your life. His Holy Spirit. Wow. To comfort, to encourage, to prompt, to sanctify, all those very Christian kind of terms. But here's the rub. Here's my connection with the ark. We looked at Ephesians, didn't we, back in the summer? And as I was preparing this and praying, how do we bring this to to us today? Ephesians 4 verse 30 warns us, says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit with whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Christians, do not grieve the Holy Spirit. We don't like to talk about judgment. I understand that. But think about what it might mean to grieve the Holy Spirit. Very personal, isn't it? Grief is a personal thing. We're not talking about an it here. We're talking about the person of the Holy Spirit can be grieved in our lives. Look at Ephesians 4, verse 30. The verse is just before it. The verse is just after it. There's a list there. I'm not suggesting it's a complete list either. But we can grieve the Holy Spirit by various different sins in our life. Malice, anger. Interestingly, chapter 5 goes on to talk about sexual immorality as well, which was the same thing that was at work in 1 Samuel. I've been quite challenged looking at this thinking, Lord, am I grieving your Holy Spirit? That may sound a heavy word, but we should ask ourselves, are we pushing him away just like the people of Israel did? Of course there's hope for us. Of course there's healing for us, just like the people of Israel. If we're convicted of anything, he wants us to come back, back to the cross and be forgiven. But it's a question I suggest we should ask. Am I grieving the Holy Spirit in any way? Paul, when he writes to Timothy, warns of a form of godliness but denying its power. We can have a form of godliness, we can come to church, we can take communion, we can say our prayers, we can read our Bibles, we can have a form of godliness but but deny its power at work in our lives. That's the individual application I suggest. Let's think about it corporately. These are exciting times to be part of St. John's Blackheath. Do I get an amen again, sister? Is this side of the church awake? Do I get an amen? Fantastic. These are exciting times to be a part of this church, aren't they? Really exciting. Eddie referred to the the letter that has gone out. The letter's about having an extra service because we've got so many people coming to church. Wow. Wow. I mean, put that in the local press. Put that in the national headlines. Church needs extra service because so many people want to come to church. Don't often hear that, do you, in the press? We're looking at an extra service. I, I'd encourage you, get behind it. Get excited about it. There's going to be challenges, of course, but wow, an opportunity. More people want to come to church. Our youngsters go off to, to Soul Survivor and come back full of the Holy Spirit and talking about what God is doing in their lives. Wow having been prophesied over, and things getting stirred in their young lives. Future leaders, current leaders. That's exciting. People are getting saved. We're not just nicking from other churches. People are actually getting saved. Wow. We link up with a group of Italians. How did that happen? And five of them go and get saved at Soul Survivor as well. Fantastic. God is doing something here. I know I get very excited about what the Lord is doing amongst the young people, but that's because that's kind of my responsibility. It's brilliant. We've got a full-time children's worker. We've got new groups going on during the week. We had 81 kids here the other day. There's no room to put them anywhere. Wow, God is doing something. It's really, really exciting. The ark represented God's presence. It was a sign and a symbol of his presence. Jesus performed signs and wonders. He said signs and wonders would follow those of us who believe. But a sign is a sign. It points somewhere. It points towards Jesus. It points to the Lord. It points to him. We want the glory to go to him. I am excited. I don't think there's anything wrong going on in the church at the moment, so don't hear me incorrectly. However, there's as big a danger, perhaps a greater danger, to a church that is growing than a church that is small. You can look at, and again, I don't want to point the finger, but look at mega churches around the world. Where success is defined by the number of people coming to church or the number of people getting saved, and then it unwinds that there 's something going on behind the scenes, and it seems that the glory departs from the church don 't worry i 've told Eddie I was going to say this, so it 's not a shock to him. I just feel that there 's a awarding for us here that we don 't Concentrate on the signs of his presence and get so carried away with success that we stop pursuing him. Stop pursuing the glory. Stop pursuing the presence of his glory, of Jesus here in this place, in our lives, in our church. When we come to the communion table in a moment, I'd invite us, and Eddie will pick up on this, just to allow the Holy Spirit to examine our hearts. To examine our hearts personally, ask the Lord that question, not in a heavy way, just let him speak. If there's any way that we are grieving him. And secondly, let us continue to pursue Jesus, Jesus, Jesus in this place. Whatever success may look like in the future, it's him and his glory that we're after. Amen.